This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. There are forecasts Australia's nuclear submarine program will help support 20,000 workers over the next 30 years as the federal government frames the massive endeavour as critical for the nation's security and economy. Details of the plan will be unveiled by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese with the two other leaders of the AUKUS Defence Pact, US De- President Joe Biden and UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in San Diego tomorrow. From there, Defence Correspondent Andrew Green reports. A police convoy escorts a visiting foreign leader through downtown San Diego, where Anthony Albanese is formally welcomed to the United States by its ambassador to Australia, Caroline Kennedy. Outside the Australian Prime Minister's hotel, the ABC spoke to curious onlookers who weren't sure who the visiting VIP was or why he was in town. So he's here from Australia? Do you know who it is? No. Do you know why he's here? No. Have you heard of AUKUS? Yes. What do you know about AUKUS? I've just heard of it, (laughs) but the name sounds very familiar. Mr Albanese's flown into California for a meeting with his British counterpart Rishi Sunak today, before the pair then joined President Joe Biden for the unveiling of the biggest Australian defence decision in decades. A new dawn in San Diego and a new dawn for Australia's defence policy tomorrow. Ahead of the announcement on exactly how Australia will acquire nuclear-powered submarines, the Albanese government is framing the move as both boosting security and the economy. There are predictions the endeavour could support 20,000 direct jobs over the next 30 years, and at its peak, 8,500 jobs alone in Australia's workforce, building and sustaining submarines. But opponents like Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation are horrified at the AUKUS project. We believe there are profound environmental, economic and public health costs, as well as significant escalation in regional tension. We believe it is a step that enmeshes Australia into American warfighting plans reduces Australia's sovereignty. Over the weekend, the ABC revealed the Defence Department believes Port Kembla in New South Wales is the best location for a future nuclear-powered submarine base. Dave Sweeney says it'll be a disaster for the community. There'll be a lot of division in that community. I think a lot of people in any port that hosts these subs that's been picked on for this will be deeply concerned. Federal Labor MP and former soldier Luke Gosling is the co-convener of the recently created Parliamentary Friends of AUKUS Group. He believes the tripartite security pact is essential for Australia's future. We need to be working with trusted partners, historically trusted partners that will enable us to have better levels of protection and that's what AUKUS will provide to our nation. In recent days, the USS Missouri has made its way into San Diego Harbour, and soon the US President, Australian and British Prime Ministers are expected to board the Virginia-class nuclear submarine as they unveil their AUKUS plan. In San Diego, this is Andrew Green reporting for AM. While the exact details of the nuclear subs plan won't be known until tomorrow, the Albanese government says it'll boost domestic manufacturing and jobs. 
Experts warn Australia must now urgently turn its attention to how to train and upskill the thousands of workers needed to build and maintain the submarines. Political reporter Noor Haydar explains. Building and maintaining nuclear-powered submarines will be a massive industrial undertaking. The former South Australian Defence Industry Minister Martin Hamilton-Smith, who's now the director of the Australian Sovereign Capability Alliance, has some idea of what it'll take. Building these things is more complicated than building space shuttles. We have the people, we have the universities, we can do this but it is going to require leadership. Mr Hamilton-Smith says while building nuclear-powered subs will be much more complex, it's a challenge the nation can meet if it acts swiftly. A country with a workforce of millions of people that is able to gear up with tens of thousands of highly qualified people whenever there's a mining boom can surely find uh, the 10,000 skilled workers or so who will be required to make the shipbuilding and submarine building industry work and the 2,000 or so sailors that will be required to man the vessels. The AUKUS deal could see Australia buy up to five Virginia-class nuclear-powered submarines from the US in the 2030s before work gets underway on building a UK-designed boat with US combat systems, although it's unclear how many of those will be built in Adelaide. Mr Hamilton-Smith wants as much of the work as possible done locally, but acknowledges that some workers might need to head overseas for training. If there is a requirement for hundreds and possibly thousands of Australian workers to go overseas, watch how these complicated machines uh, are made, that might be a good thing. But as soon as possible, as much of the work as possible needs to be done in Australian shipyards by Australian workers. For that to happen, Australia will need more highly skilled workers, including scientists, technicians, welders, electricians and engineers. You know, if the submarines were arriving tomorrow, then then we may well not be as prepared as we like, but we have some time. That's Jane McMaster, the Chief Engineer at Engineers Australia. We'll probably need to bring in specialists as skilled migrants. I think we'll also probably need to, to train additional engineers up. And the other thing we'll need to do is, is to start looking at micro-credentials. So looking at how we can upskill existing mechanical, electrical and electronics engineers uh, to give them a bit of uh, nuclear engineering and that the nuclear physics uh, skill set that they'll, they would need to work with these systems. Jane McMaster from Engineers Australia ending Nor Haydar's report. Floodwaters in the Gulf of Carpentaria in Queensland are expected to remain high for weeks, with some residents surprised at how severe the flooding's been. Dozens of homes have been inundated, towns are isolated, and many of the cattle stations in the region are facing severe stock losses, as Annie Guest reports. Burketown is one of several Gulf communities cut off by floodwaters, and while more than half of the 150 residents have been evacuated, the Burketown Hotel, which is on higher ground, is open for business. Melissa Looker is the manager. Just a lot of uncertainty, really. I mean, we've been cut off since December. A lot of people have been very frustrated with not being able to um, ongoing food supplies and not being able to go anywhere. But, you know, morale's still quite high and there's just been a lot of uncertainty with what this floodwater's going to do. The pub itself is able to take in customers. Is it a bit of a, a community centre in this iso- in these isolated times? Yeah, it is. Just gather and take their mind off things and support each other. 
Among them is a cattle producer who had just returned from visiting his property by boat. But the currents swirling around his house were so strong he couldn't venture further. He had some animals and that out there, so he wanted to see if there was anything left. That property was owned by his grandparents, been in the family for 100 years, never had flood water go through it. Pretty much he's just lost everything and he's staying here at the pub after being evacuated from there, so it's very heartbreaking. You don't know how to help, but except for just to be there, you know. Hundreds of kilometres to the east, Normanton and Corumba are isolated, while to the south, the highway to Mount Isa remains cut at Camerwheel. Josie Rowlands volunteers at Camerwheel's Drover's Camp Heritage Museum. There's still a lot of people in town living out of their cars and in tents and stuff. She says the flood levels have shocked residents. They've never seen it come this high. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And while wet season flooding isn't uncommon, Professor Elizabeth Mossop from the University of Technology, Sydney, says the latest floods should send a clear message to policymakers. It's just yet another demonstration of the fact that we are right in the middle of the climate crisis. As well as taking action to lower emissions, the Dean of Design, Architecture and Building says urgent work is needed on adaptation. What this should prompt is a really serious investigation using the best science and the best engineering and the best planning and design expertise. Authorities estimate millions of dollars of damage has been done. Annie Guest reporting. Victoria's Mornington Peninsula, southeast of Melbourne, is a popular holiday destination, but in recent years, the shrubs and dunes hugging the foreshore have become home to a growing number of people experiencing homelessness. Support services are doing their best to provide food and warm clothing, but they say more government help is needed, as Oliver Gordon reports. It's not hard to spot beaches, vineyards or golf courses when you're driving between the popular holiday spots of Rosebud and Sorrento. That's not what outreach worker Cara Vanderheide is looking for, though. So we're just going to the foreshore to meet uh, one of our clients, Andrew, who's been homeless on the foreshore for about five years. There are an estimated 1,000 people experiencing homelessness on the Mornington Peninsula. Some have set up camp in the dense scrubland, hugging popular foreshore beaches. Eventually, we reach Andrew Felicissimo. So this is uh, my everyday dwelling. This is where I spend most of my time throughout the day. So we're here on the foreshore, and nestled underneath this tree is a kitchen uh, that Andrew has set up. It's got a fridge, it's got a battery, it's got a solar blanket, there's a bike, an oven and a toaster as well. And this is where you prepare your meals? I do, yes. Uh, every day, uh, more than once on occasion, especially you know, late at night, I get some of those shish kebabs down at uh, Coles, which are really nice, like a dollar, dollar something. And I uh, cook them late at night and it's, it's really nice. I put a shower in here and it's my gas. And how long have you been living here and have you struggled to find other accommodation options? In this particular area, I've been living here in, uh, for the last four years. Uh, overall, I've been homeless for the last since 2015, so that's eight years, yeah, almost coming up in June. Uh, my application for housing has been in since 2017, um, but housing is very, very expensive. In the last three years, the median price for a rental on the Mornington Peninsula has jumped from 460 to 581 dollars a week. 
Jeremy Maxwell runs outreach service Southern Peninsula Community Support. COVID allowed people to relocate down here. They relocated into affordable property, so that removed a number of properties off the market. The Victorian government says there are 1,400 social housing properties on the Mornington Peninsula and it's investing more than $11.5 million building homes in the area as part of a $5 billion statewide project to boost social housing supply. Jeremy Maxwell still doesn't think that's enough. I think the current public housing list is over 100,000 people. That $5 billion big build is going to build 10,000 homes, so don't have to be a mathematician to work out. We're going to still be short. Back by the beach, rough sleeper Andrew is trying his best to stay upbeat. But it's not always easy. I wasn't ready for it, you know, and um, you just got to put your best foot forward and just do what works for you, you know, find out what works for you, you know. Is it challenging some days? It, it is. It can be. Very, very challenging. But um, I wasn't brought up by a pack of thieves, that's for sure so to speak, you know, and um, so, yeah, you find it within you just to keep on keeping on. Rough sleeper Andrew Felicissimo ending Oliver Gordon's report. US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says there won't be a government bailout for the Silicon Valley Bank, which has become the second biggest bank to collapse in American history. Its customers are mostly startup companies and tech workers, and authorities say they're evaluating what they can do to protect some customers. David Sparks reports. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank came after it declared it was trying to raise 2.2 billion US dollars as its assets were hit by a range of factors, including higher interest rates. That news caused customers and investors to flee the bank, withdrawing their money and sparking the crisis that's now unfolding. No matter how bad the situation is, US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says unlike during the global financial crisis of 2008, this time there'll be no government bailout. During the financial crisis, there were investors and owners of systemic large banks that were bailed out and were certainly not looking. And uh, the reforms that have been put in place means that we're not going to do that again. But we are concerned about depositors and are focused on uh, trying to meet their needs. But Janet Yellen says the government will take other steps to limit the damage. We want to make sure that the troubles that exist at one bank don't create contagion uh, to others that are sound. And she says she's working with regulators to try to protect customers' deposits. From the standpoint of depositors, many of which may be small businesses, uh, they rely on access to their funds to be able to um, pay the bills that they have and they employ tens of thousands of people across the country. We've been hearing from those depositors and other concerned people this weekend. So let me say that I've been working all weekend with our banking regulators to design appropriate uh, policies to address this situation. While other countries are not panicking yet, they are watching closely. Britain's financial system is not considered to be at risk, but the country's finance minister, Jeremy Hunt, told Sky News steps are being taken to minimise the damage. But there is a serious risk to our technology and life sciences sectors, many of whom bank with this bank that most people won't have heard of, 
uh, the Silicon Valley Bank, but it happens to look after the money of some of our most promising and exciting uh, businesses. And so uh, I want to reassure people, I've been in discussions over the weekend until late last night with the Chancellor, with, with the Prime Minister, the Governor of the Bank of England, many other people, and uh, we are working at pace on a solution. The Bank of London has now put in a bid to take on Silicon Valley Bank's United Kingdom arm as part of a consortium. In Australia, Treasurer Jim Chalmers says the government is seeking advice and is aware that some Australian firms have been affected. But he says the fallout for Australia's broader financial system is unlikely to be significant. David Sparks reporting. Now, this next story might sound like the opening scene of a cautionary sci-fi movie. Scientists in South Australia are using biology from insects to build robots with a brain. The idea is that by looking to the bug world, researchers can create robots that adapt to their environment. A robot that can interpret the world would be a huge technological development. Megan Dillon reports. Giving robots the ability to think may seem like a dangerous step towards a war between humans and machines. But Dr Russell Brinkworth from Flinders University says it's necessary to help robots reach their full potential. This result is so incredibly important because it can solve all the problems that people want robotics to do but haven't been able to do currently. He's creating robots that can understand their environment, the kind of real-world problem-solving that has largely eluded artificial technology. Our current robots work really well in structured environments that don't change. So we need to build robots that can adapt to the environment rather than forcing the environment to adapt to our robots. Dr Brinkworth is starting small, examining neurons in the brains of flies and dragonflies, working out how their brains process information and using that to create smart cameras to do something similar. Creating technology inspired by animals is nothing new. American scientists have been building robot dogs for many years. But instead of creating a robot that acts like an animal, Dr Brinkworth says he's making robots that think like an animal. I'm giving a robot a brain to understand the environment, not just to take a picture of it, but to really interpret it. The processing that goes on within the visual system of insects allows them to be able to spot other insects as they fly around. And we reverse engineered that ability and put it into a camera with an even larger number of pixels than what an insect has. The technology will likely first be used in defence and law enforcement. Dr Malcolm Davis from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute says robots that can respond to complex situations will change the battlefield. The robot actually gets to work its own way out in terms of how it's going to undertake a complex series of actions, uh, whether it's to manoeuvre across a battle space, to attack a target or to complete some sort of complex physical process. As for the fear of machines taking over the world, Dr Davis believes we can stay on top of the robots. If we're talking about advanced robotic systems, then it's humans that are creating those systems. We would build into those machines uh, an understanding or, of, or a basis for behaviour. And so I don't see this sort of Terminator scenario emerging where suddenly we're being attacked by our own machines. In the meantime, Dr Brinkworth continues to work on his biologically inspired robots. He says the possibilities are endless. That report by Megan Dillon and Angus Randall. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lang. You've been listening to an ABC podcast.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.